Welcome to The Perspectivalist. Our agenda is to offer a perspective of the world that allows you to think more clearly as a Christian. We want the normativity of scriptures to be the starting point of everything we do. Thanks for joining the conversation. This is Season 3, Episode 2, and I'm your host, Yuri Brito. Let me encourage you to read my latest Perspectivalist substack, where I offer a summary of a conference in Louisiana called the Christendom Lectures, formerly known as the Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, you are most likely not a Presbyterian. The whole thing was uh, great fun. The lectures were inspiring. The Q&A sessions were just an absolute blast. And my talk on uh, ecclesial conservatism was very well received. And I mean very well received. And the reason I know that is that afterwards there were accolades for my oldest daughter. And I will take that to the bank. Well, uh, the great French philosopher, Nature Libraire, once wrote, they may have the appearance of riches, but beneath the clothes we find a man, and beneath the man we find his nucleus. And that great piece of wisdom has me thinking about the nature of man. What is underneath a man? Is it integrity or is it a dead man's bones? I like to take this opportunity to use an example of a man to make a broader point. And bear with me because there is something sensical about this episode, and I will try to prove it to you. The man that I have in mind is the Mr. Collins, who is a character in the cherished novel by Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Working my way through once more, I was reminded of the pretentious manners and formality of that obnoxious clergyman. Now, there's a lot going on behind the political scene in Austin's mind, including the mockery of the nobility of her day, but I, I'm just a humble servant. I'm just not tuned to those nuances that some may be, but someone who is a quite well-known fella by the name of Peter, the light-hearted one, has written a book where he delves into some of these lovely footnotes by entitled Jane Austen, a Literary Celebrity, so I'll leave you to that. What I want to focus on ever so briefly is on the nature of Mr. Collins as a paradigm for what I call a tedious high churchism, the kind that you want to spit out after a sample. Now, I am not a connoisseur of low churchism criticism, so it may shock some that I'm taking the opportunity to offer chastisement on my own tribe. And I do say my own tribe of high church Presbyterianism in particular, but it can also be extended to high church, whatever, whatever, whatever kind of denomination you have in mind there. My critique of high churchism goes like my critique of homeschoolers. I have been and am currently a homeschooling father, really for most of my parenting life. I've spoken in homeschooling gatherings, I've written for homeschooling agendas and websites, so therefore, ergo, I have the bona fides to make fun of my own, but that's for another topic, and we'll get there at some time. My critique is of a variety of high churchism, of which I have the albs, the stoles, the cinctures, and pyramids to prove my point. High churchism is a form of church worship that, is, that provides an intentional structured liturgy, and in particular, I am addressing a high churchism that is dressed up rather than your standard evangelical scene with business suits. I'm talking about high churchism that comes with a calendar attached to it. And in my case, add 14 years of liturgizing in these environments, and you have yourself an experienced, potential 
high church critic. Now, of course, my goal is not to dissuade you from attending or appreciating high church worship. That's my DNA. My goal is to make you a better appreciator of such things, but in their right context, avoiding what I call the Collins syndrome. So here's my proposition. High churchism is, in most cases, invariably tedious. And I know that for many reasons, but among them, I know that because there was once a, a church mouse that attended one of these tedious high church places. Now, these are just the stories I've heard. So there was a church mouse that attended one of these tedious high church places. He was a, a very noble church mouse. That mouse died eating a, a poisonous Italian variety of cheese. And at his funeral, everyone got a very distinct impression that it was just another church service at the First Presbyterian Church of High Churchism. When worship and funerals become synonymous, we are focusing, ladies and gentlemen, on the problem exclusively. So, back to Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins, in Jane Austen's novel, has many, many problems. Besides not taking a hint, he has a bewildering, a puzzling loyalty to his patroness, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. And she is also a part of the high churchism problem because she creates the environments for morons like Reverend Collins to prosper. Collins fawns over her as if she were the reincarnation of Catherine the Great. And as I reflect and painfully contemplate this comedic villain, I find myself going back to the terror of high churchism, which goes unnoticed by the masses, but of which I am here to pronounce to you. The similarities between Mr. Collins and high churchisms are great in my estimation, and I may be only slightly exaggerating, but if I do exaggerate, it's because I am understating my utter frustration with this asinine figure. And perhaps my angst about this character is that he is brilliant. Brilliantly infuriating, brilliantly horrifying, brilliantly obnoxious, and brilliantly accurate to reflect what I think is worst about high churchism. Let me see if I can put forth a few characteristics of a particular form of high churchisms that I hope you will learn to despise as I do. The first one is a high churchism that encourages theological ignorance. Most high church congregations will have educated men. This is just a fact statistically. Often, a lot of the ministers, the clergy, have gone to classic seminaries of a liberal or conservative variety. But yet, what we typically see in these environments is that they produce this abysmal illiteracy among the congregants on basic theological propositions. There's a line in Pride and Prejudice that, that makes this point in reference to Mr. Collins, and it goes like this. The deficiency of nature had been but little assisted by education or society. The greatest part of his life, having been spent under the guidance of an illiterate and miserly father, and though he belonged to one of the universities, he had merely kept the necessary terms without forming at it any useful acquaintance. That's a brilliant line. High church worship, the kind that I'm advocating, ought to be saturated with a wealth of knowledge. But in high churchism, there's a scarcity of theological language. Sometimes the high church mood is used, you know, the $1 million organ or whatever is used to mask the lack of theological gravitas. Collins' affinity for politeness 
hid the emptiness of his own personality. And similarly, this is applied to high churchism. High church worship that is good and healthy is going to introduce fresh insights and a high praxeology rather than merely parrot surface categories. But as is in Collins, there is a deficiency of nature. The liturgy becomes a reflection of the church's vocabulary and Collins' propensity towards empty phrases seems like the right fit for high churchism. Even if the liturgy is exalted, right? There's beautiful language. There is this uh, sort of ancient vocabulary. But even if it is that, it doesn't matter because it's going to seem dry. It's just going to seem cold if the church does not instill a sense of meaning into its liturgy through biblical preaching and teaching. So high churchism encourages theological ignorance, and we ought to, of course, despise that. The second is that high churchism, which is constantly apologizing for her convictions. If you read through Pride and Prejudice, you know that this is a common feature of uh, Mr. Collins. He constantly apologizes for all sorts of things out of some sense of civility. In high churchism, it's almost like an addiction. The more you apologize for the church's woes, the more noble it becomes. And that ethos creates a victimhood that is unfathomably pernicious. There's a reason, if you've seen these on YouTube, which I have, there's a reason all these cringe videos come from high church bodies with all their vestments and gayness. They're replicas of the tiresome civility that imprisons modern high churchism. Now, of course, the suit and tie scoundrels are also all over the place, but here we're taking shots at the robed charlatans. Let's not speed to the next thing, okay? But third and finally, this is where I wish to park for as long as I'm able, is the high churchism that, pardon my German, bores the hell out of me. This is one that most upsets my Latin frame. It's not that I'm allergic to boring people, but it's that I'm allergic to tedious people who think they're interesting. It's those who assume the role of Moses in every kitchen scene, uttering from the mountain of his lexical monologue without inquiring about their guests or wives once. They don't care what other people think. Yes, these people need to be chastised. And the way this panoply of boredom plays out in worship is in the solitary scene of these Mr. Collinses, gladly arrayed in their attire, mumbling through their liturgy like castrated Egyptian slaves in Pharaoh's army. They bore me. They really bore me with their ums, uh, um, and their gay slurs trained in the Britney Spears school of rhetoric. We can't have high church worship with the glory of a covering while unglorifying the covering with boredom. Now, not all boredom is created equal. It can happen in a variety of ways. It can happen, ladies and gentlemen, with lengthy academic expositions made for note takers. I think I just lost my TR Presbyterians here. In fact, I can feel their twittering as I speak. Now, lengthy academic expositions from the BIBLE would be a dream in mainline churches, right? For us, it would be a wonderful thing. But in your typical conservative high church environment, it's ripe. It's almost as if this is a prerequisite for uh, for teaching, for rhetoric. It's ripe for lengthy expositions, which are incredibly fruitful, but they can be really detrimental in minimizing 
the other parts of the service, right? A service is not composed of a sermon alone. You can try to give attention to everything by giving a lot of time to everything, but then you're going to end up with a, a Pentecostal party of 150 minutes. And the idea of some in this level is that the longer it gets, the holier it is. That thought seems utterly painful to me. It's the kind of thing that Mr. Collins would appreciate, but I don't because, again, I think he is kind of a villain in my book. The best things, in my humble experience, the best ceremonies, the best rituals, the best services are the ones that are succinct but packed with meaning. One time I sat through this 35-minute expositions of Ephesians 5, not at a worship service on a Sunday morning, but at a wedding. At a wedding. I mean, man, just do your thing and let the bride shine. There are other avenues for these displays, but a wedding ain't one of them. The principle is that length, in my estimation, or prolonged, lengthy, tediousness, is going to make the whole thing absolutely boring. You're going to be a reflection of the kinds of romantic punchlines of Mr. Collins. But it can also happen, boredom in these this high churchism that I'm criticizing can also happen, and bear with me here, with what I call the Presbyterianization of worship. The Presbyterianization of worship. Now, I know I'm hitting close to home here, but this is where every element of worship needs to be explained like a parliamentary procedure. You know, imagine sitting through a long sermon, only to sit through another long homily, before the supper, for the Lord's Supper. It's almost as if high churchism is set up to keep you as children. But here's the kicker. The reality is that children probably have the entire thing memorized or are ready to move on while the robed man or woman, boo, is going to guide the illiterate few to the number of the hymn already printed in the bulletin in bold letters. Please turn to page one, two, three which happens to be the same page printed in your bulletin, which surely you would never have looked yourself. Now, you might be reacting to what I just said right now. You might say, but isn't this necessary for all the newcomers entering into worship for the first time, Mr. High Churchman? And my humble answer is no. Newcomers can easily learn as they go along. And if they don't get things in the first week, they can come back the second week. And maybe if they never come back, that's probably a good thing. The worship is to edify the saints, not to explain to the saints. There are times for explanations, yes. There might be even opportunities to explain things in the service, but when you make that the, the sine qua non of what you do, that's problematic. Which is why Jesus says, do this during the Lord's Supper, not explain this until they get it. Yes, Mr. Collins is guilty of all these things. He is the epitome of boredom. He is at the height of arrogance with his flowery speech, which seems to be more interested in explaining his own rationale for existing than the mere conversation between two humans. High churchism carries the added responsibility of building on the glory of its vestments and paraments and calendars. Low churchism is going to find solace in spontaneity and informality, 
But high church worship, the kind that I'm advocating in contrast to high churchism, high church worship needs to be engaging, needs to be utterly active between clergy and congregation. It needs to engage the body so that they are eager to engage the throne room of heaven. And while, if you hang out a little bit here at this wine tasting, while we may poke fun at low churchism in other opportunities as an informal gathering led by the spirit of God spoke to me, they're worthy to criticize, you with me? Let's also be very quick to mock the high churchism of gay egalitarianism robed in white outwardly and spandex beneath. But let's also be quick to mock and poke fun at the high churchism of conservative complementarianisms robed in white outwardly and covered in the tedium of Mr. Collins. Thanks for joining. And for those of you who are following a bit uh, of my meanderings to and fro, I'll be speaking in Summersworth, New Hampshire on February 10th through the 12th in the book of Jonah. I'll be focusing on the particularities of Jonah's typology with a little bit of focus on Jonah's political theory of nationalism. If you're in the area or if you are eager to enjoy the very pleasant, warm weather of Summersworth, New Hampshire in the height of winter, you are welcome to attend. Please reach out to me. I'll be glad to give you more information of that. I also have a couple of book projects which are being put together as we speak. More information about that on my next Perspectivalist newsletter. Thanks for joining our podcast. We will see you next time.